Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. We've been in a great sermon series called Living on Mission in the book of 1 Peter. And this morning, the scripture will be 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. That is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you got an old-fashioned Bible with you, that'll suffice, your cell phone, your laptop. I will be reading from the CSB version. Read along with me. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards." The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received the gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me before we get into today's message? Father, we thank you today for this awesome, wonderful opportunity, God, to come before you and to study your word today. Lord, I pray today would be supernatural, God. I pray that you would do something in our midst today, God. As we study your word, God, as we share together, I pray that your spirit, God, would work on our hearts, that our minds would be renewed, God, that that our hope in you would be restored. And so, Father, I pray for these moments that we have together, God, as unusual as they are, I pray, God, that you would allow us to sense and feel the community, God. I, I pray that you would allow us to feel and sense your presence, God. Let it be reassuring to us, God. And I pray ultimately, Lord, that your son Jesus would be glorified today. And so, Father, we thank you today. We honor you. We praise you today. It's in your son Jesus' name. And the people said, amen. Amen. Well, my sermon title today, keeping up with the same theme of living on mission, my sermon title today is beginning with the end in mind. Beginning with the end in mind. During the days of quarantine, one of the things that are that is keeping us uh, entertained, shall I say, is uh, watching this new documentary that comes on every Sunday night on ESPN called The Last Dance. The Last Dance, if you have not watched it, if you live under a rock, The Last Dance chronicles Michael Jordan's run with the Chicago Bulls. And so it's been this awesome thing to see the behind the scenes of what some consider one of the greatest athletes of all time, most certainly the greatest basketball player 
of all times. I don't care who you think your favorite player is. Michael Jordan is better than all of them. And so it's been interesting to watch this. And I'm, I'm watching this uh, with my wife, who is from Chicago. And I don't know if I'm more uh, entertained by watching the behind the scenes about basketball, or am I more entertained by her reaction to find out that Michael Jordan is actually human? Oh, some of the stuff that Mike is saying. Mike, Mike is different. Mike is unusual. We sung all them songs in the 80s and 90s about wanting to be like Mike. Oh, my God. But if cameras was rolling, we could have saw the behind the scenes back then. Mike is very expressive, uh, to say the least. So it's been entertaining to see my wife just hold her chest together every time Mike sits down and talks in that seat. And so it's been wonderful to watch. And so one of the things that was most entertaining to me was this most recent episode. I think it was episode eight. And one of Mike's former teammates, a guy by the name of B.J. Armstrong, who was one of the role players uh, in the, the, the three peat, the first three peat that the Bulls had. And so it opens up with uh, B.J. Armstrong talking about the 1998 second round, uh, second round uh, playoffs uh, in the Eastern Conference where the Charlotte Hornets, who he was playing for at the time, was playing against the Chicago Bulls. And in this particular game, B.J. Armstrong uh, was going off. He had, a, he had a great game, and the Hornets beat the Bulls in game two, surprisingly, because everybody thought that they would sweep them. And so uh, he, he starts off with this quote. And here's what is interesting. B.J. Armstrong says, let's be honest. The Bulls were a far superior team and they knew it. But I knew that system that they played in talking about the triangle offense. I knew that system as well as anybody. And I knew how to beat them. And so he just says that for game two, I just had a moment. We knew that they were better than us. We, we knew that Michael Jordan was the greatest player alive. We knew that we didn't stand a chance in that series. But for a moment, I won that battle for, for a moment. And so it goes to Mike, who's as candid as can be. Mike is crazy. Mike is as candid as can be. And Mike says this about BJ because BJ was talking so much trash. Mike says, BJ should know better. I, I'm supposed to kill this guy. I'm supposed to dominate this guy. And from that point on, talking about game two, and from that point on I did. Mike had a mentality that was so shrewd. I think that is one of the things that is so uh, profound to me is to look at Mike's shrewd attitude when it comes to winning. Mike was willing to win at all costs. There was no shortcuts for Mike. And so Mike went to play baseball in the mid 90s. And so Mike ended up coming back during the season uh, of 1995 and so he came back and Mike did okay but he was not the same Mike 45 Mike wasn't the same thing as 23 Mike and so once that season ended uh, they lost to the Orlando Magic in the Eastern Conference playoffs and so Mike was dead set on returning to form Mike was dead set on getting back to the championship because he had been there before and so here's what you realize if you're watching the series after they had lost to the Orlando Magic in the playoffs and and they lost to a former teammate by the name of Horace Grant uh, trying to get my hands on some grants like Horace. When they, they lost to Horace, Mike was so upset and Mike wanted to get the bitter taste of defeat out of his mouth. So Mike's mind was made up from the moment that that game ended that he was going to will his team back to the championship. The concern, though, wasn't really Mike's mentality. It was that of his teammates. 
And one thing that you will learn if you watch this series is Mike was a dog on his teammates. Mike had no mercy on his teammates whatsoever. Mike was not a nice guy to any of his teammates. And so for Mike, he had already won a championship. So now he's coming back on the Bulls' second leg of the 3 P, and he's coming back, but he now has some new teammates. And so Scotty's still there, of course, but now he's got some new guys, a new cast of characters who were not there during the first run. And so Mike knows in his mind that he's going back to the championship. His mind is already made up, but he wants to get their minds to a point where they can adopt and have the same mentality that he had. Jordan had already won championships. So Jordan already knew at the end of this upcoming season, we're going to be the NBA champions. Mike knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt. He may have appeared to lose, lost a battle or two, but ultimately Mike knew that he would win the war, that, that he would be victorious. He just needed his teammates to catch on. And so oftentimes we think about stories about heroes. We put ourselves in the place of the heroes and we're probably thinking like if we were on the Bulls team, like we would probably be like, if we weren't Mike, we think that we would probably be somebody like Scottie Pippen. We think we'd be the second in command. That's how we view ourselves. If I'm not the man, then I'm the man next to the man. But I've got news for you today. You know who we are on the Bulls team. If Jesus was Jordan and Jesus is better than Jordan, you know who we'd be? We'd be Bill Winnington. We'd be Judd Butchler. We'd be Luke Longley. We'd be Dickie Simpkins. You don't know who any of those guys are, but they were on the championship team. They, they were on the championship team, but their mind had to catch up to the reality that they were playing with somebody who already knew that he had already won. And so Peter is trying to get the exiles in Asia Minor to not adopt the mind of Mike, but he's trying to get them to adopt the mind of Jesus. He wants their mind to have the same purpose, the same attitude. He wants their mind to begin with the end in mind. He, he knew, Christ knew that the path to doing what the Father desired for him to do was a hard road. He knew that he would meet some B.J. Armstrongs on the way. He knew he would meet some Gary Paytons on the way. He knew he would have to dust off Charles Barkley at some point. He knew that there would be hiccups, but at some point he knew that he would be victorious. And so Jesus comes in with his purpose already in mind. He knew that he came to seek and save that which was lost. He knew that there will be some challenges to his humanity, that in order to complete what the Father called him to do, he would have to embrace and take on all of the challenges that humans face, the hardness of temptation, sin, sadness, grief, pain, suffering. He had to overcome all of that, the temptation to sin. He had to overcome all of that. And so it says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, you know what that means? It means that Jesus suffered like one of us. He, he suffered in the flesh so that he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. In his humanity, Jesus consistently made conscious decisions and choices to obey God in spite of everything. When we think about the life of Jesus, we think that Jesus just came fully in his divinity and never had any challenges. But you have to remember that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is in agony because he does not want to go to the cross. He is reluctant. So he talks to the Father about it, but eventually he has a resolve. And Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus set his face to Calvary. He set his face to the cross. And so 
For us, we must have the same type of resolve in this life, but we must be encouraged by Jesus's example and know that Jesus is not detached from our experience. That is the beautiful thing that I love about being a Christian. I know that I serve a God who's not just some pie in the sky God, but I serve a God that when I'm tired, he knows what it feels like to be tired. When I'm discouraged, he knows what it feels like to be discouraged. When I'm disappointed, he knows what it feels like to be disappointed. He knows when temptation is there, what it's like to be tempted, but Jesus overcame all of that. So I look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I look to him as my example and I know that I have somebody, a God, who's not detached from my experience. So what he's saying is, set your mind with the end in sight. Set your mind with eternity in sight. Victory is already yours, but it doesn't change the path that we have to take to get there. And the path for Jesus was a path of suffering. And so for us, that must mean mean that we must not only have the resolve, but we must also prepare. We must be prepared to accept and deal with unjust suffering for being a follower of Jesus. It says arm yourself with the same, arm yourself with the same mind. We have to have the same mental disposition that Christ had, the same way that a soldier knows he's going into battle. He knows that there's a chance that he might get wounded, but he prepares himself for battle. He does not go out there without his weaponry. He does not go out there without his armor. He sets his mind and he prepares knowing that he will face opposition, but his hope is in knowing that through his planning, preparation, and knowing and beginning with the end in mind that he eventually will be victorious over whatever is facing him. And so this is for us to adopt this same kind of mindset in this world that we pursue Jesus and we know that we would rather suffer than disobey God. And so the willingness to go through what Jesus went through is an indication for us that our faith is authentic. If you are willing to break with the old, to follow after Jesus, no matter the cost, that is a true sign that your faith is real. It says this, the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. Those that have made the choice to commit to obeying and following Christ, even if it means suffering, are demonstrating that they have made a break with sin. They've made a break with the old life. And so when we talk about suffering, what does it mean for me to suffer What does it mean for me to choose to suffer rather than to sin? Suffering can entail a whole litany of things, whether that be uh, temptation to sin, dealing with criticism, rejection, facing being misunderstood, loss of friends, loss of status. Because of our faith, we demonstrate that we have triumphed over sin. We say no matter the cost, I'm going to follow Jesus. And so they they he's asking them to demonstrate that they've embraced this new life. In Christ, that they have this mindset that is grounded in this gospel reality that we have been united with Christ. I want to show you something in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Would you read this with me? Here's what it says. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. I love that. Verse 7 says this, For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power 
of sin. Because of our union with Christ, we are no longer who we used to be. We have been made new in Christ Jesus. And so this theological reality has practical implications for us. God didn't just modify our behavior or make minor adjustments to our personality. He made us a whole new person in him. The old person we used to be is no longer. We have been made righteous because of Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross did away with our old sinful self. And so when we died, the old us died with Christ. But when he was raised, the new us rose with Jesus. And so we are new creatures. And what does that mean for us? He freed us from what we used to be and the way we used to think. And so it doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin in this life because we will. But it does mean that sin no longer controls us. We live in the reality that the power of sin has been broken. We always singing, break every chain. But do you know that the chains have already been broken? That, that because of what happened on the cross, that the power of sin has been broken off of our lives, that you are actually freer than you feel. You are freer than you feel. We are freer than we feel. I know you feel the sin creeping, but I want you to know that your reality is actually that you've been freed from sin. So when sin calls, you don't have to answer the phone. So the major implication for us is this. We don't have to serve sin any longer. Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So now what do I do with all of this freedom? I serve God by serving others. And so the next time I'm tempted to curse, I recall that God has saved me so I can use my words to bless. The next time I'm tempted to gossip, I know that I can actually say something nice about the person that I was about to gossip. Somebody ought to say amen. The next time I'm tempted to ball up my fist, to punch somebody in the eye, I can open my hands and be generous towards somebody. The, the, the next time I'm tempted to use my body as an instrument of unrighteousness, I can use that same body to serve God because he has set me free. It is a change in perspective about what we do with the life that we have been given. And verse 2 says this, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. God has freed us from being so self-consumed and preoccupied with our own stuff. And so, you know, your personal goals and personal ambitions become less important if we would just do good with that which is right in front of us. Some of us are desperately searching for what is my purpose? You're 50 years old and talking about what is my purpose? Your purpose is to be faithful right where God has you. If you are on the top floor, on the 20th floor in the high rise, and you are an executive, your purpose is to do what God has put right in front of you. If you are on the first floor and you are answering phones, your purpose is to do the best with what God has given you and serve him by serving others right there in that capacity. It ain't that deep. God is not some mystery God where he wants to hide your purpose from you. When he saved you, he gave you something to do. And so we can make a decision because we're free. We can make a decision to live the rest of our lives Serving God. 
rather than serving ourselves. But once again, this takes a resolve to know that traveling down this road of following Jesus ain't going to be easy. The path of following Jesus is not the path of least resistance, but it's actually the path of most resistance. Here's what it says, verses three through six. For there has already been enough, enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior and evil desires and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and lawless idolatry. Here's what he says about people that used to be in your life or are still in your life now that you've given your life to Christ. Here's what it says about them in verse four in the culture around us. It says this. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. But here's the thing. They will have to give an account to one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are dead so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. And so it will take us making a real break with our former life and coming to the reality that we no longer have time to waste. That, that, that he doesn't deny the reality at some point we may not have been following Jesus. At some point we may have been in church, but God was not here in our hearts. Maybe there was a time when we were out in the world doing whatever we wanted to do and we didn't give a second thought about God. But he's saying that now that you are in Christ, it is time to put the old life behind you. That was nothing but wasting time. We are now so bankrupt in certain areas of our lives because we wasted and spent so much of our time and energy in, in situations and with people that we never saw a return on. We, we wasted so much of our lives. And so he is asking us now to redeem the time that has been lost by serving God with our lives, that we no longer live to gratify the flesh and to have a lack of self-control and to indulge in the excesses of our previous life. He's calling us to walk away from self-destructive and harmful behaviors and harmful people. He's essentially calling us all to grow up. So he's essentially saying that you'll be a fool to relapse or to go back, even if it meant some people will get mad at you. And so for them, it was offensive to people in that culture that they didn't go along with whatever else everybody else was doing. It, it was a way of life to, to, to go into these drunken states and party all night and to live a riotous life and have excess living. It was their civic duty to live this way. It was their civic duty to worship multiple gods and to get drunk and do all of those types of things. They were expected to do that. And so I don't think you understand. I, I don't think you understand what... what the, the gravity of what I'm saying. One commentator says, says this. He wrote that not to participate in the Roman way of life would have been like an American today not standing for and participating in the Pledge of Allegiance or singing the national anthem. But imagine that as an American, you were forced to do both of those things in order to prove your loyalty to the nation. And so if you can imagine being at a football game with a stadium full of people and they expect you to sing the national anthem. That they expect for you to get up off your knees and stand so that you can show your loyalty to the country. Can you imagine what that would be like in our country if somebody decided to do this? If 70,000 people are in the stands and you decided not to stand because you believe 
in something else. Can you imagine what kind of pressure that may cause? Can you imagine the type of endorsements you may lose or the career that you may never get back or the ridicule that you may face or being denied opportunities all because you decided to take a stand for something that you believed in? When you think about that, this is the same kind of context that they had. There was so much social pressure to conform to the way of life that was around them. And so for them as Christians, they had to make a decision that either I am willing to lose everything and follow my faith or I capitulate so that I can be relieved of the pressure in society. And so to follow Christ was to be committed to expect to have this happen, but be committed to seeing it through no matter the cost. You know, that, that's what it means to be a foreigner in an exile in the world. But, but, but you know what? I realize for some of us, it don't even take that much. Some of us capitulate for far less pressure. For some of us, it ain't got to take a football game with 60,000 people looking at us as we kneel. For some of us, we can't even stand up to our friends that are in our lives. S- some of us are afraid of offending family members because we don't want to not be invited to the next cookout. We, we are so afraid of the fear of missing out that we would rather be quiet about our faith and conform to what is around us than taking a stand for Jesus and being salt and light in the world. And he's calling them to let them know that God has called you out to stand over and against society, to engage with them, but to be radically different at the same time. But not to worry about the hostility that you'll face because there are consequences for them, but there's also hope for you. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Look at verses 5 through 6. It says this, for those who ridicule Christians for believing what they believe, here's what it says in verses 5 through 6, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. And here's what he's saying. As a believer, when people stand against you, they think that they are siding against you But in reality, they're not siding against you. They're siding against God. And what they don't understand is this, that the gospel is not man's gospel. The gospel is God's gospel. And it is true whether the the world decides to believe in it or not. It does not change it. This is the same God who would judge both the living and the dead, that by de- even in death, we will not escape God's judgment. Even God's power even extends into death. This is why we share the gospel, to prepare people to one day be able to face God. And so although for an unbeliever, that should make them shudder, but for us as believers, it should give us a great hope. It should be an encouragement that to know that when this all passes over, that, that if I be made a fool in this life for following Jesus, I know that God will have the last word, that death does not have the final say-so, but Jesus has the final say-so. And the good news is, is when we die as believers, we will not be judged for our sins because that has already been punished out to Jesus on the cross, but God will stand, we will stand before God, and we will be righteous, and all God is going to do is ask us, what? did you do with the time and the life that I gave you? 
And so we must find hope and know that even physical death is not the last for us, that, that, that Jesus has already defeated death. He was raised to life by the Holy Spirit. And so we actively wait as believers for him to return, to restore and to renew all things. And so speaking of the return of Christ, Peter wants to encourage them to do this one simple thing. He wants them to live with a sense of urgency. Here's what he says, verses 7 through 11. Would you look at this? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. Since love covers a multitude of sins, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He, he's saying, live with the end in view. What we believe about the future shapes how we live today. The end is near. You know, people keep wondering, well, when is Jesus coming back? Like, is it, is it really real? Like, if the end is near, is that like next week? It's like, when is that? Does, does all the things happening now, is that an indication that, that he's on his way back? You know that the end, biblically speaking, the end started when Jesus came, that he inaugurated a new time, that, that through his life, his suffering, his death and resurrection, that is when the end actually began. And so when they say that the end is near, they don't mean like calendar end is near, but it means that his return is imminent, that you can trust that he is coming back. We just don't have the privilege of knowing when. But we do have the privilege of preparing. We can prepare as we wait. We can do what he's called us to do. It is an encouragement for believers and it should stimulate us and give us a sense of urgency to figure out what it is that God wants for us to do. And so Peter takes some of the guesswork out of it for us and he leaves us four things to do. Four things that we can do to live faithfully in the world and in our community. Here's what he wants us to do. Number one thing he wants us to do is he wants us to think clearly. He says he wants us to be sober minded, to think clearly, but not just thinking clearly for clear for, for clarity's sake. But he wants us to think clear so that we can pray. He says be self-controlled and clear minded. And he's contrasting the drunken state. Let me say this. There's a lot going on right now. And so people or run into things to escape. But no matter how many times you run to whatever you run to to escape, whether it's smoking, drinking, drugs, whatever it is, we must deal in the reality that it is not worth you harming yourself just so that you can get away and not have to deal with life. But there's a better way to deal with it. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not in a bottle. Our hope is not in something that we put in our body, some sort of nicotine or some sort of drug. That, that's not where our hope lies. Our hope is in Christ Jesus. And we can always run to him. 
But we first must have a clear mind. We have, a, have to have a clear mind so that we can pray and be free of distractions. The purpose of being clear minded is so that I can go to God so that I can speak. But here's the thing we miss so that we can also go to God and we can be able to hear what he's saying. And so that we can listen when we're praying. Knowing that we are living in the end, that, that we can go and find out what it is that God wants us to do. We should be praying now like never before. We should be praying so much because so much is going on around us. And ultimately, we should be praying that the Holy Spirit would remind us of Jesus's victory on the cross. I think we have to pray to be reminded of that because we often forget and we become hopeless and we, we turn into despair because we lose sight of reality. And the reality is this. Jesus has already secured the victory for you and for me. So here's the second thing. A clear minded prayer life fuses and enables us to sincerely love other people. This is the type of love that demonstrates forgiveness by looking over Small and minor offenses, a love that does not retaliate, a love that doesn't allow things to get out of hand. It's a love that does not publicize people's faults or try to expose people. It's it's a love that protects it from public view. That's not to say that we don't deal with sin and we don't discipline sin. We do. But it says that when there are minor offenses present, that present, that we cover those, that, that we cover them so that we don't destroy the fabric of the community, but that we love each other and we try to suppress and step in and stop destructive behaviors before they go too far. And so for us, a sign of being loving is a sign of a transformed life. If, if a person is truly saved, by God's grace, they will be a loving person. Not only will they be a loving person, the third thing is that they will be a hospitable person. And he puts a caveat here. He says, be hospitable without complaining. He's saying that people should open their homes for worship and for fellowship. That, that you should open your house to guests often. That even when people are wearing out their welcome, and we've all at some point known somebody who stayed a little bit too long. They, they, they were supposed to be there for three days. It was three months. Your uncle was still there. <laughs> you were still there. You said, I would be here for three weeks till I get on my feet. And it was six months later, and you hadn't got on your feet. But that's okay. The Bible says that a Christian should be so hospitable that they are hospitable and they don't complain about it because they know that is the cost of following Jesus. That, that even for us as strangers, God has brought, we were once enemies of God, but he brought us into the family of God. He brought us in and he tucked us in no matter the inconveniences. He tucked us in our mess, cleaned us up and gave us a family. And then this last thing is so important. He wants to for us to commit to a life of service. Here's what he says in verses 10 through 11. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides. It's one of my favorite scriptures. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. We all as believers have a spiritual gift from God. Even if you don't think that you have a gift, God has given you a gift. And these gifts are just manifestations of God's grace. But they are also given to us so that we can serve other people with our gifts. 
And God doesn't give us all the same gift. God gives us a variety of gifts. That's the beauty about Jesus. He gives us all these gifts. And so he says in this, he breaks them into categories, mainly speaking gifts and serving gifts. And let me say this. Everybody clamors for the gifts on the microphone. But let me say this. Preaching, prophesying, and singing are not the only gifts that God gives the church. Don't feel slighted if somebody doesn't hand you a microphone. Don't feel slighted if they don't refer to you as a prophet. We don't need any more prophets. We need prophets who will proclaim what God has already said, not prophets guessing, because most prophets didn't prophesy that we'd be watching church every Sunday morning from our computers. But can we give some attention to the other gifts? Some people have a gift of technology. I don't know how to turn on a computer, but somebody does. Somebody has an administrative gift. I don't know how to use an Excel spreadsheet, but somebody in the church does. There's a gift of generosity. How else will the church stay open if they're not people who are committed to giving to the church? I know somebody's just like, that ain't, that ain't, that ain't, that ain't my gift. That, <laughs> that generosity gift ain't my gift, Pastor. But that is somebody's gift. Maybe God is giving you resources so that you can be generous to kingdom work. Well, what about the people who, who serve? Serving is a gift. Some people know how to roll out the red carpet. Some people know how to come in and make things look nice. Somebody, some people know how to come into the church and make church feel like home and create a warm environment. That is a gift. And so all the gifts are not just boiled down to preaching, prophesying, and singing in the church. Somebody needs to take care of these kids. Somebody ought to say amen. That's a gift. That's a gift. I say, Lord, make me a prophet. No, Lord, make me a children's church worker. Somebody needs to know how to work with their hands. Somebody knows how to work with a screwdriver. Somebody knows how to work with a hammer. But nobody clamors for those gifts. But they are all needed. I don't know what your gift is. Maybe you know how to do hair. Maybe you know how to design clothing. Maybe you know how to rally people together and get them together on a common cause. I don't know what that gift is, but God is giving you something. It's up to you to discover what that is. But when you do, Know this, that God gives us gifts to steward. The gifts that he gives you don't even belong to you. He wants us to be stewards, that we faithfully manage what he has given to us. And for me to faithfully manage something, that means I treat it with care. I don't just do sloppy work because nobody's looking. But whether people are seeing it or not seeing it, I do my best. Whether I know people are coming into the operation or to the building today or not, I make it look as good as I can. If I'm serving food for a thousand people or ten people, I put forth my best effort. If I'm, if I'm spreading out the donuts and the food at church, I'm stacking them donuts and making them look like they belong in a magazine. Because I want to be a faithful steward of the gifts that God has given me. These gifts that he gives us are not a privilege. They are a responsibility. And some people do it faithfully. And for the person who is tired, and I'm done, to the person who has been serving 
when others would not serve. It's the person that's always stepping up to the plate. Maybe you're that person at your church that all you need is a word. They just got to tell you, you get in where you fit in. You may be a CEO at your job, but you take that off when you enter into the house of the Lord. And you come in not as a CEO, but as a servant. What if we all adopted that posture? What if we went into our jobs not to boss up, but to lay it down before Jesus? What what would our workplaces look like if they were filled with humility? What would the church look like if we all just came and said, I'm just just here to serve. I'm a CEO at my job, but if you need me to greet at the door, I'm willing to do it. Because this ain't about me. I'm serving because that's what I've been called to do. I made a decision and a commitment to live for Jesus. You may be a shot caller at your job, but maybe you should adopt the posture of a servant. That maybe it's not about climbing the ladder, getting to the next level. We should be tired of getting to the next level. At some point, we're going to bump our head on the ceiling of heaven. All these levels, dimensions. Maybe the way up is down. Where has God called you to serve? Who has God called you to serve? I want to get back to this point in verse 11, one of my favorite scriptures. He says, if one serves, let it be from the strength that God provides. And I think that's for every person in the church who does everything that they can to make it go. Because ministry is tiring at times. Some just come in and enjoy the coffee, enjoy the donuts, enjoy the drinks, and enjoy the preaching, and enjoy the singing, and they go home. But some come in and do the work. the blood, the sweat, the tears to serve in ministry. But the the promise is this, that God says that we can do it from the strength that he provides. And so I pray God's strength for you that is serving in your local church. I I pray God's strength for you that is serving your family to the best of your ability. I pray for you that is serving your spouse. I pray for you that is serving your children. I pray for you that is serving everybody that you come in contact with. That God says he gives strength for what he's called us to do. Why would he do that? Because if we use his strength, we have to give him back his glory. Ah! It's not about us. It's about him. God gives us the strength, the wisdom, so that when we look up and realize, how in the world was I able to pull this off? It was nobody but God. How was I able to stay at this job and serve these people, although they are so unappreciative and they passed me over for promotions and they never gave me a raise because I was doing it in God's strength. To him be glory, power, dominion forever. 
How am I able to keep serving in this church with, with tears streaming down my face? People don't know what my Friday was like, what my Saturday was like, what my work week was like, what my family issues, what my money problems, and yet I still come here and serve and I never get a pat on the back. How am I able to do it? Because it's the strength that God provides to him be glory, power, and dominion forever and ever. How am I able to stay in this marriage and serve this spouse who is ungrateful at times, year after year after year, without ever a thank you? It's 20 years later and I'm still here serving. Because it's only the strength that God provides it to him be glory, power, and dominion. God's glory is our aim. So, from this day forth, as we serve, as we live, as we evangelize, as we work, as we do what we do, let us do it. Beginning with the end in mind. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you, Father, that your grace is sufficient. Lord, we pray that you would infuse us with strength for, for this week, God, that you would infuse us for, with strength for this season of our lives, that you would give us grace upon grace, that you would pour out your grace on us, God, that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, God, that you would give rest to the weary, to the tired, to the broken, to the hurt, that you would give us beauty for ashes, that you would give us the oil of joy for mourning. Lord, I thank you, Father, that we know that this is not the end-all, be-all, but we are living just to live again. So thank you, Jesus, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for your life. Thank you for the gospel that compels us, that draws us, that saves us, that keeps us. So maybe that's you and you're watching. Maybe you thought that your life and your gifts belong to you. But now, hopefully, with the Spirit's help, you understand that this is not about you. It's not about me. But if you belong to Jesus, if you surrender your life to him, know that you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Your life is not your own. And this life may be hard at times. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of seasons of joy and peace and rest and happiness and all that good stuff. There are. But when life gets hard, we need to be reminded. When we look lonely, when we're Steve Kerr, when we're Judd Butchler, when we're Scott Burrell, when we're Ron Brown, guys that we don't remember after Jordan left the Bulls, we have to remember that although the season may be starting, we already won the championship. That the victor is already on our team. And just because we might lose game one or game two of a series doesn't mean 
that at the end of the season, we won't be standing victorious because we will. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.